and Gora Hope. My name is Kyle, for those, who, uh, those of you who don't know me, and uh, I'll be reading God's Word to you this morning. So this is Mark 1, 35 through 39. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Let's pray. Uh, dear Jesus, just thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. And God, we just pray for uh, Cameron, Lord, that you'd give him wisdom and that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear you and obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, good morning, Dwarf Hope Northeast. Really good to be with you. Uh, my name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's really good to be with you. Um, yeah, I felt in a, <laughs> a week with piling tragedies. It didn't feel right to just jump into things. I'm glad that Rachel took a moment to, to kind of create some space for us. But I just, I just do want to encourage you, um, if you are dealing with a lot of grief and anxiety this week, um, you know, over the, the shooting of Dante Wright, mass shootings, multiple places, Robert Delgado and PDX, or gosh, rioting and arson <laughs> on the west side downtown uh, in our own city. Um, I just encourage you to be in process of, and, and gosh, we're having to develop the habit, aren't we, of learning to process these things with God um, in prayer. Um, in, in community, if you don't have community here at our church, if you've, you know, maybe you're new or maybe you've just kind of been a little bit disconnected, you don't have people here to process with, like reach out to me, reach out to Josh Wilder. We'd love to help you get connected with a small group or, uh, or just, you know, someone who's, who's up for connecting. And that goes for us too, to, to the, uh, the opportunity to process with your pastor is a big part of what we do is uh, to be, make ourselves available to, to all of you to, to process these things, to ask, where is God in the midst of this? How might we as Christians think and pray and act in response? Um, so ne- I, hope you, I hope no one in this room ever feels that it would be burdensome or whatever. Any, any negativity around the idea of reaching out to your pastors to connect and process, uh, it's, our, it's our privilege to do that with you. Um, so I just want to remind you of that. Um, the text this morning, we read it, um, it we're, we're just about to finish Mark chapter 1, and then uh, the texts are going to get a little bit longer, and we'll start moving a little faster through the book. I, I think this is going to be a pretty short message, reflective of, of the short text. I've got three pages, which typical is like six, so, but we'll see where the Spirit leads. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, it's a short text. It do, you know, you read that, or you have Kyle re- read it for us, and we listen to it, and you don't necessarily think there's, there's not a lot of fireworks in this passage. You know, oh, okay, that's a little transitional story or whatever. But I think there are, there's one or two, like, the more I study this, kind of stunningly timely and appropriate um, things to take out of this, to apply, to, to follow in the way of Jesus in from this. So I hope, hope you'll see them. The question I want to start with is, have you ever, you have a memory of, of a time you've ever been sucked in by the power of a crowd? Has that ever happened to you? 
There's all kinds of positive examples. The ones that come to mind for me are sort of being lost in a crowd, like at a, at a concert, and I'm just loving the music. The, the whole room is fired up, or, or huge stadium, or whatever it is. Everyone's singing together. Everyone's kind of sharing in this thing, and the joy, the, like, the infectious joy of joining in on what a mass of people are doing together can be beautiful. I mean, it's the same thing that that can happen here in our worship gatherings. I mean, ideally, it would happen more often here than it would at, say, a Radiohead concert or something like that. Um, but you know that feeling. It's, it's, it's the beauty of communal experience, of a massive crowd all unified in one heart and in one thing. It can be beautiful. Um, or it can be horrible. I, I, some of my most shameful memories, uh, honestly, are... Uh, and it's maybe strange that they, they still carry this much weight for me, but being involved in sports as a young kid and high, up through high school and the kind of hazing rituals that would happen, especially by the time I was in 11th grade or 12th grade, and just knowing in my heart of hearts that like this thing that's happening right now is evil. And the way we're treating this you know, younger kid or a group of kids or whatever, it's wrong. But not having the courage to stand up and to kind of go against the grain of what the crowd is doing. Um, yeah, I have like serious sad memories over something that relatively is somewhat trivial, but man, the power of getting caught up and swept up in something like that, uh, it's, it's palpable. Um, and that's, there's a little bit of an element there to what's going on in this text. I mean, we just read the whole thing, but this, the story is, if you remember from last week, Jesus has just healed Peter's mom. So he goes to the home of Peter and Andrew, and they discover that uh, his mom, Peter's mom is sick, and Jesus heals. She begins to serve them, and then as sun goes down and the Sabbath ends, the people begin to flood. It says the whole town were bringing their people to come and maybe get a healing from Jesus. Um, and so this is the very next scene. So very next day, 30, verse 35, rising early in the morning, while it, was, while it was still dark, Jesus leaves. And the idea here is that he has to go and like hide from the crowd. Like it's not, it's not merely just a, a, base, you know, a general spiritual practice of like, oh, I like to get up early and go be alone. It's also that he's like got this mass following around him and there's, <laughs> there's nothing for him to do. Uh, if he wants to escape. So he has to get up early and he has to go somewhere out in the wilderness to get away from the crowds. And some of us reading this, um, maybe, the, maybe the introverts among us, I'm, I'm one of those uh, here, um, we, we naturally see one important angle on what might be going on here. And that's that as the crowds are pressing in on him, demanding his time, demanding his focus, demanding his energy, they, they pose a threat to what he really needs to be doing. Um, and uh, it's, like, it's like a string of phone calls pulling you from some important task you really need to do. You know that feeling? You're just trying to get something done or like your kids barge in on you or your phone keeps blowing up or whatever it is and you just can't like get a moment to yourself. I think we can intuit like the crowd as frustrating distraction is a real thing. Um, but maybe even more than that, uh, some of us might more naturally see the other angle, which is the crowds as sort of a tempting diversion. It's not that they're annoying us, it's that they're luring us. It's like a siren song drawing us to what the crowds uh, are after. Um, this, this idea speaks to the crowd as that sweet, sweet validation from the masses, uh, where numbers and, or maybe money or whatever are the signifiers of value. 
It's kind of that pragmatic or utilitarian idea that, hey, if it works, if lots of people are into something, then it must be good. It's essentially might makes right. Um, And Jesus, in this passage, subtly, he reminds us and he teaches us to be skeptical of the crowd, doesn't he? Um, His example warns us not to assume that that the ideas and values of the masses are necessarily the same as his perfect ones. And it's not that the crowd or a majority of people is always or necessarily wrong about something, but it just makes it a whole lot harder to identify when it's wrong or to have the courage to stand up and defy it when it is wrong. And I know in Portland, probably a lot of us in this room are nodding our heads like, yeah, the masses, like mass culture, yeah, we're, we don't like that kind of stuff. Um, there's a huge part of our culture that would just shout this idea from the rooftops. Be skeptical of the masses, you know? It's, it's the be weird, forego the mainstream, resist, rebel, subvert. But isn't it ironic that the same spirit, this same spirit ends up becoming its own mainstream, its own mass culture, its own sort of ideologically policed group that you can't divert from, its own crowd, in effect especially in a place like this. And so we should all be really careful that we don't think of ourselves as somehow above the temptation to give into the crowd. Um, The the counterculture crowd can be the crowd nonetheless. Why do you guys think I don't have any tattoos? I'm actually the edgiest person in this room. My only source of edge is my lack of tattoos. I'm not against tattoos. Maybe I'll get one someday, but I will feel like a little bit of my, like, I'm I'm different. We'll have to die in Portland if I get one. Um, So there you go. So whatever your relationship is to the crowd, whatever whatever crowd it is, um, the example of Jesus here is actually incredibly powerful, I think. And so we're going to look at it briefly. Um, The first thing I want to point out is, if we just go back to that first verse, just to highlight that under pressure, again, the crowd's beating down on Jesus, looking for Answers, looking for healing, looking for peace. Jesus seeks solitude to pray to his father. Um, Pressed in by the crowd and by the many demands, he literally takes a moment to escape. And he had to be strategic both in terms of time, he gets up super early, and in terms of location, he goes to the wilderness or the desolate place where people couldn't find him. And you have to remember, in most of these little towns, Like, homes were made up of 10 to 20 people living in a single-room house, okay? There's no privacy there. There's no privacy there. Most of the homes kind of faced into a common courtyard in little blocks, so there's not even anything outside your house where you can get privacy. And then the streets are tiny and narrow. Like, he has to leave the city if he wants to go find some quiet to pray. So he has his work cut out for him. And we don't know what he's praying for. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us here. Um, you might assume that he's praying for direction. You know, God, I've got a bunch of people demanding my time. What should I do? Where should I go? Um, maybe he's bringing his circumstances before God the Father, trying to discern what's next. Or maybe it was just a standard prayer, something like the Lord's Prayer that he taught his disciples to pray and that we recite at the end of our services. Maybe he was doing something like that. Um, Or maybe it's just a chance to commune with God the Father for its own sake. Maybe he didn't have a particular need. He just knew he needed to get with the Father relationally. 
But whatever the content of his prayer was, the model remains for us. Um, and, and take note here. Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, God in human flesh, he needed to pray to sustain his life and his ministry. Um, of course we must also, right? Of course we're not above this. There's this undocumented quote that's attributed to Martin Luther. You probably heard it. It's when, when he was asked by his friend what he had to do the next day, his response was, work, work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. And we catch something like this attitude here from Jesus, don't we? The crowds are pressing and there's so much to do, so many people demanding my time. I, I, I'm just gonna have to pray more in response. For me, I don't know how it is for you, I'll just confess, for me, when busyness strikes, prayerfulness is often the first thing in terms of things I know to be important that actually take a back, 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 back seat when, when busyness hits. There's other things I'll make, I'm like, I have to do this, I have to do this, or things will fall apart, but prayer, I, I don't know. To my shame. Um, for Jesus, prayer takes precedence over everything, even a whole town's worth of demands. And again, if, if we remember from last week, this wasn't cruelty or a lack of compassion for these people. It was a chance to root himself in the one thing that would actually make him most useful and helpful to the world he came to serve and love. So, there you go. We see in the next two verses um, that under pressure, the disciples take the opposite tack. Under pressure, the, the disciples look to appease the crowd. So Simon Peter and those who were with him, they came searching for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And the ESV translation doesn't really capture the power of this word searched for. That's kind of a neutral term. The, the real word, uh, the word in the Greek kind of carries this, this connotation of like hunting or desperately seeking out. They're sort of frantically coming after Jesus. Where is he? Where is he? We got to go find him. And they found him. And they said, look, every, everyone's looking for you. The crowd is gathered. What are we going to do? And we don't know what was motivating them. They were, you know, it's probably safe to assume they had a sense of like ministry responsibility. Hey, we've got a crowd gathered, Jesus. Think we should probably deal with these people. Um, maybe a sense of empathy and duty towards their need. Um, it's, it's very easy to assume that where the crowd is, so too must the priority be. I, a funny story, um, before, uh, well before, a year before Door of Hope Northeast launched, um, the elders at Door of Hope Southeast sent me and Susanna to a uh, kind of like a, basically a, a leadership evaluation kind of conference thing where you basically get evaluated like for your potentiality as a, as a church planter. And uh, there was a lot about it that was really helpful, encouraging, eye-opening. We learned a lot. Uh, there were also some things that were really strange about it. Uh, and one of which was there was this exercise we had to do where we were in a small group of people where we had to basically like build a church business plan kind of thing. Like, who, where are you going to go and what's your ministry going to be like and what's your core values? And we had like one day to put this together. And then the premise was like we had to present to a group of people who were pretending to be like potential like 
church investors, like people who are going to give this church money. I don't even, I, is that a thing? If so, we need to, we, we, someone needs to put us in a room with those guys. Um, no, <laughs> I'm sure it's a thing. But they, uh, yeah, and, and so I remember our, our group was, we had decided the church we're going to plant is going to go to an under church, sort of like, you know, urban city in the U.S. where there's very few, you know, gospel-believing churches and so on and so forth. And the response we got from some of the people in the room was like, why would you go there? It's hard to plant churches there. People like churches in the suburbs. Churches in the suburbs are successful. Why don't you just go to the suburbs? And essentially our whole thing was kind of like shot down as like, now this is an unrealistic plan. Um, and there you go. It's, it's, it's the idea that if just because something gets the numbers, something has the masses behind it, that that's obviously the thing to do. And maybe that's kind of what Peter and the disciples were thinking there. But finally, they have a moment of confrontation, the last couple of verses. Jesus, Jesus speaks to them. He says, look, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And that's the end of our story. And Jesus defies expectation here because he's not going to let the masses of people, no matter how big or how compelling or even, even how much in need they are, to set his agenda. He has a focused mission, and he says here it involves a commitment uh, for him to preach. And he doesn't say what, what, what the content of that is, but Luke's gospel telling the same story says, quote, I must preach the gospel of the kingdom to the other towns as well. And so Jesus creates a really important distinction here. His ultimate purpose is to preach, to declare the good news of the kingdom and everything that flows from it. But his compassion continually leads him to perform miracles as people have needs. So he's even saying, my purpose is this, but every time someone comes up you know, in, in desperate need of healing or a demon to be cast out or whatever, he responds in graciousness and kindness and generosity. He stops and he addresses it. But the same compassion leads him to continue to perform miracles. Um, the same passion that, give, that leads him to continue to perform miracles leads him on to the next town because he can't just stay in one place and meet the temporal needs in one city because there are people everywhere that he needs to minister to. He's got to take the gospel message that provided eternal salvation and real and lasting hope and an invitation by grace through faith to be part of his kingdom family to further and further and further places. Um, another idea here is that in contrast to the single crowd here, Jesus' vision is bigger. It reminds us his ministry was not just for one community. And that's really what the crowd signifies. It's them grabbing onto him. It's them clinging to him, like essentially, Lord, don't go. We need you here. And again, they probably did. And there's suffering everywhere. There's misery everywhere. There's sickness everywhere. There's despair everywhere. Everywhere truly does need Jesus to stay and be amongst. But it's the same everywhere. It's the same everywhere. Jesus' ministry, this reminds us, wasn't just meant for one community, 
no matter how desperately they wanted to keep him. As we're gonna continue to see, he's got to share this with all of Israel eventually, and then eventually all the world through his disciples and through us, through us, 2,000 years later. The commission still remains to take this to the ends of the earth, not just to hoard it at Door of Hope Northeast or the Door of Hope family of churches or the city of Portland or the U.S. or the Western Hemisphere or whatever, but it goes to the ends of the earth. Because no matter how subtly it communicates it, this text does communicate his heart is for all, continually going out and out and out and out to seek people in their despair and in their pain and in their lostness to bring the good news. So Jesus, beautifully, he doesn't lose sight of of the one town for the many or the many for the one. He does it all. His care and concern is for everyone. And he's not going to be dissuaded by sort of ministry, uh, you know, surfacy ministry achievement. Like, great, we got the crowds. Let's stick here and stay here. And that's kind of it. That's kind of our... That's kind of our message for today. Um, to, to, to bring this a little bit more home, of course, of course, I think we all have areas we're tempted to give into the crowds, but I want to f- give you one last thing to conclude on. And that is that this is really good news that Jesus is this way and that Jesus' response is let us go to the next towns because that means a couple of things. One, he isn't swayed by our same ideas of greatness or prestige or utility or efficiency or strategy. He's going to continue to go out and out and out. And know why that's so, such good news? Because you get to be included in this. And I do. That a bunch of random people sitting in this building on 9th and Fremont in Portland, Oregon in 2021 have been shown the grace and mercy of God. Most, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, there was some point where he broke through your heart, revealed himself to you, either it was massive and crazy and wild, or it was subtle and simple and almost strangely mundane. But however it was, you came to see Jesus as the Savior. That means he left the crowds to keep coming further to get you and to get me. Because he loves you and he cares about you. And it's not because you have a uniquely special thing that no one else in the world does to offer the kingdom. You are special. You are unique. You are individually created and loved and cherished by God. But he doesn't come after us because of what we can give him. He just loves you. He just loves you. And he died for you. He died to take your sin into himself. To give you his righteousness in, in return. So, Jesus' loving care and concern for you is not dependent on what you bring to the table. It's not dependent on how advantaged your skills are to his program. He's, it's just that he's the good shepherd. And he leaves the 99 to go after the one who is lost, even if they're in strange Portland in 2021. And this text reminds us that his grace is for you and it's for the person that, you know, you're thinking right now that maybe you're praying for or desiring, man, I just want this person to come know the Lord that so far from him, he loves them more than you do. And odds are he's showing up in their lives in ways that they're not recognizing because he desires that all should come to know him. Tragically, some will reject him, but his desire is for all to come to know to love him and to receive 
welcome into his family, his eternal family. So this is good news, friends. Jesus leaving the crowd, that means you and I get to be part of his family. Amen?